children sing a song of liberation. The God of our salvation set us free. Death, where is thy sting? The curse of sin is broken. The empty tomb stands open. Come and see. He's alive, alive, alive. Hallelujah, alive. Praise and glory to the Lamb.
I sought favor from my Lord. What gain is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. You turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Let's think about that as we sing these words, as we rejoice to the Lord. Come and stand before your maker, full of wonder, full of fear. Come behold his power and glory, yet with confidence draw near. For the one who holds the heavens and commands the stars above is the God who bids to bless us with his unrelenting love. Rejoice! Come and lift your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of our praise. Rejoice! Sing the mercies of your King. We are children of the promise, the beloved of the Lord, one with everlasting kindness, one with sacrificial blood, bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. Come and lift your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of all praise. Rejoice. Sing the mercies of your King and with trembling rejoice. All our sickness, all our sorrows, Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still. Turning tragedy to triumph. Turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle. So take heart and stand amazed. Rejoice. When you cry to him, he hears your voice. He will wipe away your tears. In the midst of suffering, He will help you sing. Rejoice, come and lift your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of our praise. Rejoice, sing the mercies of your King. Lift 
up your name. Call on our Savior. Call on your grace. Sing that again. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come. We're gathered together to lift up your name. Call on our Savior, call on your grace. Hear the joyful sound of our offering as your saints bow down, as your people sing. We will rise with you, lifted on our wings, and the world will see that our
Well, good morning and welcome to Hebron Baptist Church. We exist to glorify God by inviting every person to take their next steps towards Christ. For some of us, that might look like choosing to follow Jesus. For others, it might look like getting baptized or joining a local church. Wherever we are, we want to encourage all of us and equip all of us to take our next steps for Christ. Well, my name is Alan, and it is such a joy to join with you all in worship today. If you're a guest with us today, we want to extend a special welcome to you. Thank you so very much for joining with us today, whether online or in person. We're so glad that you're here today. We would love to get to know you, and one way we can do that is through a Connect card. That's a card that looks like this. It's in front of the seat in front of you. If you would pull this card out and fill this out, this will let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can serve you. Then after service, if you walk through these central doors and turn left, you'll see our next steps desk. There you can meet someone who will be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Turn this card in and also receive a free gift. So welcome to our guests. We're so glad that you're here today. As always, we like to encourage worship through giving. If you'd like to give, there's a few ways that you can do that. One of those is also through another card, an online giving card. This is also in the seat in front of you. If you pull this out, you can scan this QR code with your phone. That'll take you to our online giving page. If you'd prefer to give in person, there are black boxes on the back wall here in the sanctuary. You can drop a gift in. You can also write to P.O. Box 92, Hebron, Kentucky, 41048. Or you can drop into the office Monday through Thursday, 9 to 430, or Friday, 9 to noon. We're going to transition now to a moment of prayer. I invite you to please join and pray with me. Good morning, Father. Lord, we thank you today that you, our God, reign, that you are king over the world. Even through the challenges, through the dark times that may surround us, you are still on your throne, and we are your children, all who call Jesus Lord. Thank you that you are our God. Today, Lord, we come to you and we lift up to you our church's core value of meaningful membership. Father, we thank you for the beautiful design of your local church and for the invitation that you give us to be a part of this. Thank you, Lord, that because of the local church, we don't have to go through the, the challenges and even the joys of life on our own, but we get to share all that with brothers and sisters. We thank you here at Hebron Baptist Church that you've brought together so many diverse gifts and personalities and interests and hobbies and passions, and you're weaving us together like a tapestry, all to be your hands and feet to our neighbors and to each other. And we ask that you would help us with that, Lord. We ask that you would give us sensitivity to the needs of those around us, to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters here at Hebron Baptist Church. Lord, help us to know how to serve each other and be with each other through the joys and sorrows of life. Lord, we pray this morning not only for ourselves, but we lift up to you Mosaic Multicultural Church, worshiping you today in England. Lord, thank you that even across the globe, we're not the only ones singing praise to you, but we're surrounded by brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. And today we lift up to you this church. We pray for church planter and pastor Alex Brito. We ask that you would bless this local body, that they would be encouraged within their membership, Lord, that you would be amidst with it where they are. Use them as a bright light to share your gospel. And we pray for revival, that many hearts would receive you as Savior in London. And being such a diverse, multicultural place, that many would return to their home countries and bring your good news with them. Please bless today, Multicultural Church in London. Lord, speaking of multicultural and, and across the globe things, we, we think and lift up to you Russia and Ukraine. 
with the continual conflict there. We ask that you would bring peace. We pray for government leaders, that you would give wisdom. Lord, we pray that even in this dark time, that you would be with the many people there who have experienced brokenness and trauma. We pray that you would use missionaries to go and to tell and to share of your amazing love, and that even in this dark time, many would be drawn to know you as Savior. Please be with church members there, believers. Be with them. Provide for their physical needs and strengthen them in their faith. Please, Lord, be with Russia and Ukraine. Finally, Lord, we come to you with our greatest need, and that's need of forgiveness for our sins. We need a Savior, and we thank you that you've not left us to our own to just try to appease for our sins by trying to do good things or good works. We could never earn our way to you, Father, in that way. But instead, you have come to us through the incarnation, through Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life and ministry. We thank you for his death where he died not for his own sins. He had no sins, but for our sins. And we thank you for his powerful resurrection in which he broke the power of death. What a great king he is. We confess our sins to you, and we pray you would wash us clean. Thank you for the forgiveness you give to us through the sacrifice, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We praise you for what you've done for us, and we continue to worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.
sing this good news. Now my soul can sing a new song. Now my heart has found a home. Now your grace is always with me, and I'll never be alone. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Some of you will ask, did you know that you were going to preach this morning before 9.15? The answer is yes, I did know. Um, we're, going to be reading, uh, we're going to be continuing in our series in Isaiah this morning, in Isaiah chapter 10. So if you would, if you brought a copy of God's Word with you, whether it's on your phone or a, or a paper old school copy, or, or if you uh, would like to read along maybe in the translation that I'm, I'm going to be preaching from. There's a copy in front of you in the pew, and that's going to be on page 608. For our children and those new to reading the Bible, that's, when you get there, that's Big Ten, Little Four. We say that in my house and family worship every day because sometimes we struggle to find those verses. And I realize that some of us who didn't grow up in church and maybe aren't used to reading the Bible, that might be different. So again, Big Ten, Little Four, no judgment. Um... We're going to be uh, walking through that together. So I'd encourage you to, to turn there um, together. Um, I mentioned last time I preached, two weeks ago, that I, uh, I, I wanted you guys to help me preach, hold me accountable like the Bereans in the book of Acts, that uh, make sure I don't say anything I shouldn't say and stop me if I start to say something bad. Just because I prepared does not make your task any less important um, to hold me accountable. So that's why we have our Bible open together. Uh, and, and also because we're feasting from it together. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, um, I would, I'd love for you to turn to Isaiah 10. There's a, there's a strange relationship between a child and a parent when it comes to discipline. Natural instinct should tell a child that when uh, discipline, when punishment is coming, to either fight or flight, right? It, it seems strange that um, when you think about it, that our children, if you're a parent, they don't run from us, uh, or maybe they do it once, like I did, <laughs> and regretted it, when we punish them, that they don't constantly live in fear of us when we punish them, because uh, it would be easy to, for the, our children to see us as just a dangerous person, because especially, and a lot of, it seems like in a lot of marriages, there tends to be one parent who's the disciplinarian, my family was that way growing up. Uh, I wished, I hoped that it was my mom who was going to administer the punishment because if it was my dad, it was going to be far worse. Um, and there's that oft-repeated phrase, wait till your dad gets home, right? Not good. Not good news. So, um, but there's a strange relationship. It's like, wh why don't our children live in constant fear of us? Um, and you might, there might be several reasons. One reason might be 
that um, we are otherwise loving to them. So when we're not actively uh, disciplining them, we are playful and we are loving and giving and kind. And so maybe that we balance out more love than punishment. You might say, oh, what, what choice do they have? What are they going to do? Live on their own? You know. So they're sort of forced in that scenario. And this sort of tricky scenario is part of what makes abuse so heinous because that is an already complex relationship between parent and child and we add complication by being unnecessarily or wantonly violent or abusive that's part of why that's so deplorable God knew that this would be a complicated relationship between parent and child. This relationship is mirrored in lots of other relationships in our lives. Uh, perhaps boss-employee is a tricky relationship when discipline needs to come down. Sometimes government official and citizen. Sometimes there's a disconnect there. Or, or I think about police and uh, just a regular citizen. Um, there's, there's complications in all those relationships because of that already complication of, of occasional violence. Um, and so we come with that sort of thinking and heart to the text this morning as we think about um, judgment. And I hope that we see today in God's word in Isaiah chapter 10 that although God does pass judgment, and we'll see in our text, that we ought to do this strange thing where we trust in God's judgment. So I hope when we look at Isaiah 10, we'll walk away trusting in God's judgment. Let's read the text, and we're going to read it together, or uh, I'll read it out loud, you read it um, quietly um, in your own mind. But read along with me as I read. We're going to be in Isaiah 10, verse 4, to the end of the chapter. Sorry, excuse me, verse 5. Verse 5 to the end. Uh, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send them against a godless nation. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, and to trample them down like clay in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he plans. It is his intent to destroy and to cut off many nations. For he says, aren't all my commanders kings? Isn't Kalno like Carchemish? Isn't Hamath like Arpad? Isn't Samaria like Damascus? As my hand seized the idolatrous kingdoms whose idols exceeded those of Jerusalem and Samaria, and as I did to Samaria and its worthless images, will I not also do to Jerusalem and its idols? But... When the Lord finishes all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. For he said, I have done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. I abolished the borders of nations and plundered their treasures. Like a mighty warrior, I subjugated the inhabitants. My hand has reached out as if into a nest to seize the wealth of the nations. Like one gathering abandoned eggs, I gathered the whole earth. No wing fluttered, no beak opened or chirped. Does an axe itself, does an axe exalt itself above the one who chops with it? 
Does a saw magnify itself above the one who saws with it? It would be like a rod waving the one who lifts it. It would be like a staff lifting the one who isn't wood. Therefore, the Lord God of armies will inflict an emaciating disease on the well-fed of Assyria, and he will kindle a burning fire under its glory. Israel's light will become a fire and its holy one a flame. In one day, it will burn and consume Assyria's thorns and thistles. He will completely destroy the glory of its forests and orchards as a sickness consumes a person. The remaining trees of its forest will be so few in number that a child could count them. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the seas, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed. Justice overflows. For throughout the land, the Lord God of armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. Therefore, the Lord God of armies says this, My people who dwell in Zion, do not fear Assyria. Though they strike you with a rod and raise their staff over you as the Egyptians did, in just a little while my wrath will be spent and my anger will turn to their destruction. And the Lord of armies will brandish a whip against him as he did when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And he will raise his staff over the sea as he did in Egypt. On that day his burden will fall from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because your neck will be too large. Assyria has come to Ayath and has gone through Migron, storing their equipment at Mishmash. They crossed over the ford, saying, We will spend the night at Geba. The people of Ramah are trembling. Those of Gibeah of Saul have fled. Cry aloud, daughter of Galim. Listen, Laisha. Anathoth is miserable. Madmena has fled. The inhabitants of Gabim have sought refuge. Today the Assyrians will stand at Nob, shaking their fists at the mountain of daughter Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power. And the tall trees will be cut down, the high trees felled. He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. Let's pray. Lord God, we've heard you speak directly to us. With some understanding through your Holy Spirit, we're grateful. But Lord, we pray that through a greater amount of your Spirit in this place, in our hearts, in our minds, that we would grow in our understanding of this text, not so that we would multiply knowledge, but so that we would trust it and obey it. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. So this is a um, bittersweet text. There's emotion all over the place, and there's highs and there's lows. And if you were to take the text and divide it, you could divide it into three sections. The first beginning of the, of the text is a judgment on Assyria's arrogance. The middle section of the text is an encouragement to the people of Israel that God will preserve a remnant... And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then the last section of the text is a further encouragement to Israel about the coming judgment on Assyria. 
So with that understanding of the text, let's walk through what it is that God would have us to do, to believe, to think, to trust in um, as we consider the text together. So if you're taking notes, the first point um, we're going to hopefully see this morning is that because God's judgment on the arrogant is coming, we should trust him. Because God's judgment on the arrogant is coming, we should trust him. We see all the way through the first part of the text, the judgment on Assyria, which is coming. So uh, Assyria is referred to as the arrogant. In verse 5, it says, woe to Assyria. Verse 6 talks about the command that God has given to Assyria to be the instrument of God's judgment on Israel. We've seen this already the last few weeks in our study of the book of Isaiah. But verse 7 is really that point where we understand the depths of the arrogance of the people of Assyria. He says, but this is not what he intends. The judgment of God is not the intention of Assyria. God is using Assyria as his instrument to judge Israel, but Assyria thinks it's all about them. And their arrogance will be judged. Verse 12 says, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. In the verse 13, we get a direct quote from the Assyrians. I have done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. Even though Assyria, strictly speaking, is doing God's will, they deserve no credit for having done so because they're not doing it as though it is God's agenda. They're not following God. They're not obedient to God. They're doing really what they want to do, which is to conquer the nations around them and make a name for themselves. They seek glory for their actions. They want the nations to be afraid of Assyria. They want everyone to look and say, hey, look how great Assyria is. So for the moment, Assyria and God's interests are aligned. But they do not need to think that they will always be so. Because verse 16, Therefore the Lord God of armies will inflict an emaciating disease on the well-fed of Assyria, and he will kindle a burning fire under its glory. What Isaiah is telling us here is a great reversal is coming. When he says, I will inflict an emaciating disease, emaciating is that is, is when your body sort of becomes thin, when you don't eat well, when you don't sleep well, and you start to wear out and get pale and pallor. That's what emaciating means. So when, when he says an emaciating disease is going to inflict the well-fed of Assyria, they look great now, but they won't when God's done with them. He says he will kindle a burning fire under its glory. So that the light that draws the attention of the surrounding nations to Assyria is going to be a fire that's going to burn them. The nations will watch as God judges the people of Assyria in their arrogance. This is actually a continual theme throughout the Bible, as it turns out. We see this most typified in Matthew chapter 5 as part of the Sermon on the Mountain. We've actually looked at this in the last year or two. Um, when in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then in verse 5, 
Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God coming, in which things as they are will not be things as they will be. They will change. God is going to reverse what we see. We could not illustrate this any better than Isaiah already has in chapter 10. Verse 15, I love this. We should laugh when we read it. Verse 15, does an axe exalt itself above the one who chops with it? (laughs) Assyria is a tool. No smarter or more talented or more powerful than an axe made of wood and metal. Somebody just made that for a job, and eventually that axe is going to break, and they're just going to chuck it and make another one. The axe has no value in and of itself. God uses it, and then he will discard it, and that's Assyria. But um, when we come to this point, we, we get a really dire view of Assyria, and it's really easy in a text like this one to say, oh, Israel's the good guys, and Assyria's the bad guys, and we're the good guys, and we're like Israel, and we need to pass judgment on the bad guys like God does. Well, if we do that, we've grossly missed the point of the text. And have been guilty of the very thing the text is condemning, arrogance. The arrogance of Assyria is clearly foolishness. Proverbs 18, verse 6 and 7 say, A fool's lips lead to strife, and his mouth provokes a beating. A fool's mouth is his devastation, and his lips are a trap for his life. You might put that in needlepoint and stick it in your children's rooms. <laughs> so we're tempted to identify with Israel in text, but there is a word for us alongside the Assyrians. What we see the Assyrians expressing is the problem of sin that we're introduced to all the way back in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. Part of Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve, first he says, did God really say that if you ate of the fruit of the tree that you'll surely die? He makes them question his word. But secondly, he says, actually, this is what God's motive is. So I understand what God wants, and I will tell you what God wants. What God wants is that you aren't like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. He says in Genesis 3, if you eat of it, God knows, in chapter 3, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Presumably, that's a bad thing. God doesn't want us to be like him, so it's really God's arrogance that keeps us from enjoying this great fruit on the tree. And so they reach out and they take of the fruit, and then comes the uh uh-oh moment. This wasn't what I thought it was. That's sin. That's how sin was in chapter 3 of Genesis, and that's how sin is today. Sin is when we think we know what God wants because it's what we want, and we do what we want instead of what God wants. The foundation of sin is that we get the the creator-creature distinction mixed up, right? We are intended to be the moved, and God is the mover. We are the paint or the paintbrush. But God is the artist. We don't get to decide what is right for us. God is the one who gets to decide what is right for us. And so when we believe that we think we know better than God, that's exactly where Assyria was, and that's exactly where we will find ourselves in our own arrogance. If we look at the foundation of unbelief, 
You may come today and you haven't quite bought into this whole Christianity thing. You may be watching this online and maybe you haven't quite bought in to the Bible, to Christ. I'm just not sure about all of this. The Bible tells us that unbelief is the source of idolatry because without God in his rightful place in our lives, we're tempted to give credit somewhere else. We're tempted to say, oh, look what we have accomplished. We go back to the Tower of Babel, which would be familiar to our AIG people because it, that's a, I know they're in the process of making an exhibit for that, but we go back to the Tower of Babel, and what was the, the primary sin there? Let's build a building, a tower to reach the heavens so that everyone will know and that we will make a name for ourselves. That was the problem at Babel. And it's a problem that's continued all the way to today because it's, that's the foundation of sin in our lives. This ought to, for those of us who have, who have believed, who have accepted Christ, who have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, this should make us a most humble people in the eyes of the world. When we're tempted to point a finger at others, we need to curl that finger right on back to realize that we are ourselves arrogant. And we are inclined to exalt ourselves over God. We should be the first to point out our own sin and the last to exalt ourselves because we, as a people, know who we were before we met Christ. We knew we were without hope in the world. We knew we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We knew that we had exchanged the glory of God for the picture of birds and animals and creation. We knew that we worshipped money and sex over God. We knew that we did that. We know that we're still tempted to do that. And it should humble us. And when we look at the judgment of God on Assyria... We should look at that with like, well, that's right. That's justice. Syria deserved justice. We ought to be the first to look at ourselves and say, we deserve the same fate. We deserve to be cut down and destroyed. We look at the example of Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, suffering and dying for our sins. So if, if we know the truth of who we are without Christ, and we know through the example of Christ, who was humble and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, then we ought to be a, ourselves a people most humble and gracious. We look in our midst and we say, look what diversity there is. And I glory in that every time we gather that we are a people from all different sorts of tribes and tongues and nations, that we are people from different backgrounds and socioeconomic status. And we might say, wow, we are a nice bunch of people, aren't we? I was reading a book, and I'd recommend this book to you. It's a book called The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. I'm reading it slowly because I've got a bazillion other things I'm reading at the same time. But I came across this quote. Um, she quotes another man named Yuval Noah Harari, and I'm going to read you this quote. I don't, I don't sense this guy's a Christian, but I'm not really sure from the quote. But it's very telling. The Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? 
we need to seek out unity in the faith and in Christ and see the dividing wall of hostility of racism and classism broken down in our people, but we need to acknowledge that not as something that nice people do or woke people do or politically postured people do, but as people who were dead and are alive do. We hold as a people of God something more in common than people who look more like us and sound more like us and whose paychecks have the same amount of digits that ours do. We hold more in common with each other because we all know who we were and we know who we are. A people dead in our trespasses and sins and a people bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have no hope to boast in apart from that. And so we give glory to God, not ourselves. We've already seen evidences of God's judgment that are already happening. We have God's promise that they will not be forever for his people. So firstly, we saw that because God's judgment on the arrogant is coming, we should trust him. Secondly, the second point, because God's wrath against his people is not forever, we should trust him. This is really good news. Verse 12 says, But when the Lord finished all his work, finishes all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem. That's the good news. The judgment will be finished. It won't be forever. What a great but. But when the Lord finishes, that day is coming. Verse 25, in just a little while my wrath will be spent and my anger will turn to their destruction, which means it will no longer be turned towards his people. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, For his anger, we read this first thing this morning, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. Before COVID, it was we, about once a year, the student ministry would have these uh, nerf battles. Does anybody remember those things? Those were really fun. Um, they got pretty nuts, actually. Um, but there, as part of these things, and then I, I guess it was. We get this from action movies, but there's that thing where you're, you try to dodge behind some kind of a barrier and wait for your opponent to exhaust his bullets, right? And there's that sort of running joke in action films that you start counting how many times they fired, and you're like, that clip doesn't hold that many bullets, right? It's like they got an infinite clip or something. You know? But like in, in a, I'm trying to calm it down a little bit. It's like in a Nerf battle, you, maybe if you knew how many, how many Nerf darts your opponent has and his in his clip, you're like, okay, I'll just wait for those until I hear the eighth one. And I'm like, okay, now I step out and start firing, right? You wait for your opponent's weapon to be exhausted, and then you fire, right? You're hoping that your opponent doesn't have another weapon somewhere that's full of uh, more Nerf darts or something, which that does happen. Um, but yeah, you're, that's, that's sort of the, 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 the strategy in a firefight. For God's people, his wrath is exhaustible. That is good news. God promised a day for Israel in this text where his wrath would be spent, finished, exhausted. To use that firefight method in the gospel, uh, the firefight metaphor, Excuse me. In the gospel, God has fired all the bullets of his wrath 
on his son. He is no more in the chamber. There's no more judgment left because it's been poured out on Christ for his people. What good news? What good news? It is important for you to know, though, that that gift that Jesus has given, his death on the cross is what I'm talking about. When he went to the cross, when he was falsely accused of blasphemy and, 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 and treason and sent to the cross and died there, the worst death that we know. We have a word in the English language, excruciating, to describe the pain we, that you has inflicted upon you on the cross. The worst pain we can imagine. The worst way to die. There it is. Crucifixion. And Jesus took that upon himself. And the wrath of God was poured out in its fullness on Christ. So that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What good news. But, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you haven't turned from your sins and trusted in him for salvation, then you're in the same place as the Assyrians. Your judgment is, is still coming. As bad as life is now. We have this phrase, my life is a living hell, to describe how bad sometimes life can be, and it can be bad. But your worst day now is nothing compared to the judgment that is coming for those who haven't turned from sin and trusted in Christ. The judgment I'm, I'm deserving of, that every human being is deserving of, is waiting for you. Because Romans 1 tells us all of us have exchanged the glory of God for mortal things. Because we've given the wrong things credit, most notably ourselves, without Christ, that wrath is not extinguished. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, we ought to be defined by humility and seen by the outside world as dwelling more on future promise than present judgment. So we ought not spend all of our time talking about how judgment is coming because for us as a people of God, it isn't coming for us because it's already poured out on Christ. So we ought to be a heaven, heavenly focused people. We ought to look forward to time with God that doesn't include judgment for us. As imitators of Christ, as Christian parents and employers, and leaders, and human beings in, 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 in relationship with other human beings, we ought to be a people whose wrath also can be exhausted. When we are spurred on to anger, we ought to be the kind of people whose wrath lasts only for a moment. We don't dwell on the sins of others because Christ didn't dwell on the sins of us. We ought to be forgiving of our spouses, of our children, of our friends, of our enemies, of our neighbors. Even that one who didn't start shooting off fireworks till one in the morning. Even that one. We are a people who don't hold grudges. There's no room in the Christian's heart for grudges. Because if there's room in your heart for a grudge, then there's room in God's heart for a grudge on you. So we are a people who forgive and forget. And as we've said, as those saved by Christ, there's now no condemnation for us, so we need not fear the wrath to come. But not only is God's judgment not forever, 
But we don't have to live in fear of getting caught in the crossfire either. The people of Israel might have been afraid that while God is then turning judgment on the Assyrians, that maybe some of them might get killed in the process. Friendly fire, so to speak. We don't have to worry about that because thirdly, God's preservation of his people is sure. And so we should trust him. God has promised us in his word that he will preserve a people. Verse 20, and on that, this is back in uh, Isaiah 10, verse 20, and on that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them. They will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The good news is not that just that his people will be preserved, but that they will depend on him as they should always have done. They will give him credit as they should always have done. God is going to have a people perfected by his judgment. Verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. What good news. Verse 22, Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed, justice overflows. A remnant will return. But this isn't a lucky few. This isn't just the fittest people who lived through the ordeal. The people who are left are the people who depend on the Lord. Shortly after we moved into our house, um, we had a nice yard, and we thought, you know, it's time, to, it's time to spend some big boy money on weed killer, right? So that our yard looks really nice and it's not full of weeds. So I went out and bought some weed killer, sprayed the front yard, and nothing was left. <laughs> All we had was weeds. So when I sprayed, the weeds were gone, and so was all the grass. We had no grass in the yard. There was nothing left. And so, um, as it turns out, our yard is about the most fertile piece of property ever for everything except real grass. So I waited 10 minutes, and our yard was green again, but with weeds, not with any kind of boasting grass. So God's wrath isn't like that. I mean, it is like that in the sense of it it, it, it will punish evil. It will, um, it will, it is just and complete. But God's wrath on his people doesn't eliminate them. We see, count, like over and over and over again in the Bible, we see evidences of this. You think about the story of Noah and his family. God was so angry with the whole world, he would rather unmake it than let it continue to go on as it was. And so, he wiped it out with the flood, but he didn't wipe everything out or everyone out. He saved a few, Noah and his family. And <laughs> pretty quickly after Noah gets off the boat, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say this, but I can see a moment where, when, when Noah gets drunk and does some things inappropriately. There might be a moment where it's like, maybe there would have been somebody else. But no, God doesn't regret what he does. God knows what he's doing. I'm just making a joke there. But God continues to preserve a people throughout judgment over and over and over and over again. God has a people set aside that will not pass away because he loves them. The, word, the world looks at the declining number of self-identified Christians and thinks that one day there won't be any anymore. Some rejoice in that. They're like, well, churches are shrinking, Christianity is declining, so they say. And, uh, and, and good riddance, we've evolved past that. But what's interesting, what they're not telling you is that, that generally the denominations and churches who have walked away from the Bible, those are the ones that are dying. 
The ones that have actually stood on God's word are not the ones dying. They're not dying. They're not declining near as quickly. And so what I would argue then is perhaps we just miscounted the Christians to start with. And what we're seeing then is the nominal Christians, the one that didn't love Christ, they're walking away. Now, you might think, well, that's very judgmental of you, and you'd be right. Here's the thing. In that moment, this isn't a moment for us to go, see, they weren't real Christians. Good riddance. No, 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 no. We were loved in our sin and transgression, and so we love them. And so when we talk to people and say, uh, if you go with us this afternoon, uh, we have gospel to every home this afternoon. If you go with us this afternoon, and we come up to a door, and you hear somebody say, oh yeah, I used to go to church, and that eight out of ten probably of those will say, yeah, I used to go to church, but I don't go to church anymore. We don't go, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> we wouldn't do it there. We would say, well, hey, no time like the presence to start back up again, right? We, I, I love our church. Why don't you come check us out? I mean, we're not perfect either. Whatever it was that made you mad to leave, you're probably going to find that here because it's full of people, right? Um, I, you've heard it said, you know, the, the church is full of hypocrites, and maybe you've heard this. Well, there's always room for one more. Um, yeah, there's always room for one more. So we love people, right? But the, the truth is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and not because there's anything amazing about you or I, but because God is amazing. Because God doesn't miss a thing. God is not surprised. God is not weakened. God is not crying in a corner. God is doing something among his people still today. And it's so good to be a part. Christ himself is the greatest example of God preserving a people. If you walk through the whole Bible story over and over again, we see the narrative coming to a pinch point. We look through the people of God and we don't see any righteous ones. We think, maybe this is the end. That actually happens in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. We've, we read that a few weeks ago. The first, first, very first verse of Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Most of us skip over that, but if we look at the story of Uzziah, all the way up into a certain point, he was looking very much like the king was promised to us in David. Like that there was a king who would reign on David's throne forever. Uzziah was looking very much like that king. And there was a considerable amount of the Israelites who were thinking that Uzziah was that king. And they were hoping that Uzziah was going to be that good king. But then he fell. He worshipped God in an unworthy manner and God struck him with leprosy and he died. And the people of Israel thought, well, that's it. There's now no hope. But Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. So when we look in the world and feel like the people of God are diminishing or on the retreat or small, we can say with Isaiah, I see the Lord seated on the throne, exalted, and the trail of his robe fills the temple, and the glory of God is visible among his people. We've seen it today. So we've sung together. We've seen the glory of God. And so we ought to be encouraged as the Israelites were meant to be that God is in control. That God is preserving a people and that his judgment is good. 
We certainly want God to judge evil. We don't want him to abide it, do we? We don't want it to continue in the world. But we also know that God's judgment is good. God's judgment is just because he, he punishes the arrogant. God's judgment is just because it isn't forever. And it's just because he preserves the people. So we can trust in everything that God does, even when it looks like we're losing. May we be encouraged by these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us faith. Help us to trust and to do what you've told us to do, even when it looks bleak in our world. Help us be faithful to share the gospel when it looks like people will reject it. Help us to take a step of faith, if we haven't done so yet, to turn and to believe. And help us to be a people marked by humility and faith. We praise these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Reflect on that, those words from Pastor Mark and the truth of the Spirit.
Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. We are so excited because this week, a group from our church will be going on a mission trip to Salt Lake City. So we're going to take a moment now to commission this group. If you are part of that group going on the mission trip, would you please come up front here? We'd like to pray for you. As you're coming up, we'd also like to invite up anyone who's in the, the family of these people or in their life groups or anyone really who would like to come and lay hands on this group as they prepare to go on this mission trip. Awesome. A few stand-ins? Perfect. Okay, cool. The reads. So, as you'll notice, so please feel free at this time to come on up. Lay some hands on. Anybody's welcome to come on up. You, you'll see here that these people going on the trip have wristbands. Please receive one of these. And this is for you to put on your wrist. So, throughout this week, you can remember to be praying for this group. As you're walking up, I'll just mention, this group will be headed to partner with our partner church, Redeeming Life Church in Salt Lake City and sharing the gospel with people in that area. All righty, so come on up, grab a wristband, lay a hand on a friend, and we'll pray together here. Father, we thank you so very much for your call to us to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. And that includes Salt Lake City. Thank you for those here who have said yes to that call, who feel that burden to go and to share your amazing life-giving news of Jesus. We pray that you would bless this group of people on this trip, Lord. We ask that you would have gone ahead of them and provide divine appointments with people who you're already working in. We pray that you would cross the paths with our church members here, with those who are in Salt Lake City, or even just on the airplane ride on the way there, who need to hear of your good news, who are far from you, who need your word planted in their lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with um, our church members going, that you would give them discernment to know what words to say, and to know who needs to hear. Of course, everyone needs to hear. We ask that you would allow the kids to be blessed with this experience, the adults to be blessed. We pray for safe travel, for safe return home. We ask that you would bless the fellowship that our church members get to have with those at Redeeming Life Church, that it would be sweet, that our bond with their church would grow. We just pray that through this trip, Lord, that you would destroy Satan's work and that people would go from death to life, that people would hear of your good news and receive you as Savior. Please, Lord, fill this group with your spirit, bless them, and we look forward to hearing of what you do as they come back home. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Thank you all for, for going, and thank you all for coming up and praying. Well, as we wrap up this morning's service, just a few quick announcements and reminders. Thank you, Mark, Pastor Mark, for that awesome sermon. We are so blessed by that. Just a few quick things for this week. 
If you're a guest here today or just anyone who may have questions, please feel free to stop by the Next Steps desk on your way out. You can turn in your Connect card there, learn any information that you may have questions about, receive a free gift. Thank you, guests, so, so much for coming today. Um, if you would like, we invite you to be a part of the Gospel to Every Home ministry. That will be today at 4 o'clock. Anybody is welcome to come. You don't have to have any prior experience. This is an amazing opportunity to go to our neighborhoods, to share the good news about Jesus and about our local church with our neighbors. So please come on out today at 4 o'clock. If you are participating in the summer reading program, reading through the book Gentle and Lowly, there will be uh, some meetings coming up this week on Tuesday and on Wednesday. You can learn more about that at the Next Steps desk. And in addition, finally, please continue to pray for the Salt Lake City Mission Trip team. Uh, for more information on how to pray for that group, there is a, a sheet on the Next Step desk you can pick up that has all kinds of great prayer points for that group. Well, thank you all so much for coming and worshiping with us today. Go in God's grace, and we'll see you next week.